Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. This teaching by Jetsama Akun Lamo was recorded live before a public audience. Jetsama nourishes longtime Dharma students and newcomers alike by distilling traditional Buddhism into food for the Western mind. This morning I would like to teach about planting your garden, your Dharma garden, as you enter onto the path. And I'd like to talk about having the right motivation, right attitude right action, those kinds of the right conduct, those kinds of virtuous directions so that you can plan accordingly for your path. <coughs> when we enter onto the path, it's difficult to get a, a broad view or a big view or to understand what it is that we're doing, how to get an overall concept so that we can guide ourselves. We find ourselves a little bit like, um, like we were in the position of that uh, Hindu story I'm thinking of. It's an Indian story where we're trying to see the whole elephant, but you can only see through one little hole. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you see the trunk. Maybe you see the tail. Maybe you see the foot. But in no way from any of those small views can we get a sense of what the elephant actually is. So it's like that with Dharma, and accordingly, it's hard to find our way. And sometimes we take a little left turn, a little right turn, and maybe we find ourselves in a in a in a thicket or a forest that we didn't intend to be in, where it's hard to find our way back, and it's hard to keep ourselves pure on the path. Sometimes we mix things in with Dharma. This is a big fault that comes in the West. Because in the West, we've been taught a certain way. Culturally, we are taught to perceive or to try to perceive or to reach for an external deity. And we are taught that we should um, curry favor with, with that deity in whatever way our religion instructs us to. And so there's this external phenomena, an idea that we have that really is not what the Buddha has taught. Because according to the way the Buddha has taught us, the goal is not to go to heaven, hang out with your buddies playing harps. We are taught that we're not really going for a Snickers bar at the end of our lives. We're not going for a gift. We're not waiting for someone to gift us us, or for us to earn something that gives us the credit into Disneyland or Heavenland or whatever. The Buddha taught differently than that. The Buddha taught us that whatever we are reaching for can be found by not going anywhere, by not leaving the very place that you are in. The Buddha taught us that the path, that is to say the seed, of Dharma, which is Buddhahood, 
the path of Dharma, which is the method of Buddhahood, and the result, which is Buddhahood, that these three things, all three, lie within us. Completely, uh, I should say, spontaneously complete and full with all its qualities. The goal here, then, is to awaken or recognize one's true nature. And of course, there are many, and as many ways to begin that path of recognition in the path of Dharma as there are people on the path of Dharma. Because the Buddha taught in such an excellent way that he recognized that each one of us have different needs. We have different habitual tendencies. We all have habitual tendencies, but we have different ones. And each of us feels like we are especially unique. We think that, yes, we all have habitual tendencies, but mine are special. (laughs) They make me special. And that means it's your job to know me and my special stuff. Got that? (laughs) That's how we feel. But the Buddha taught us that as many ways as there are to be in a state of non-recognition, there are that many ways to practice and to return or to abide in a state of pure recognition. So for many of us, we begin by practicing Lundra. Lundra are the preliminary practices. There are five different accumulations, major accumulations. And these five different accumulations bring us to a certain point where we are purified, where we are, our karma begins to shake loose, and we begin to see subtle differences within our mind. And what actually happens is that our perception is purified. So for some of us, the way to start out is to purify the five senses. So to purify the five senses, (coughs) to purify the five senses, we rely on (coughs) Nundro. Because the way that Nundro practices are designed, they're actually (coughs) designed to purify the five senses. Now we ask ourselves, what are the five senses? How do they come about? I mean, when we think of the five senses, aren't they correct? Shouldn't we listen to them? If we want to, for instance, walk through a chair or walk through a room without bumping into a chair, we need our five senses. And actually, we think of the five senses as being guiding factors. And we think of ourselves as handicapped when they don't work perfectly like if we have no vision or no hearing. (coughs) And in fact, that's true to a certain extent. To a certain extent, that's true. We do need our five senses to negotiate around. But in truth, our consciousness filled with our, and our habitual tendency are actually the creator's of our five senses, and our five senses 
are sort of coming after the fact, if you can imagine that. It's hard to think that. But our senses develop as a method for us to engage in a dualistic world that we have already perceived to be the case. In other words, if we did not visualize, if we did not, or actually, if we did not understand or think or um, conceptualize that there is a separation between self and other, the five senses would not have come about. They are like... capabilities that are indicated by our attachments and repulsions and our belief in self-nature as being inherently real. So the five senses, in whatever form, considering whatever kind of life we have been born into, (coughs) the five senses actually develop after the fact. They tell us that what we already know conceptually, that what our discursive thought has already told us, is true. They confirm, actually, what we already know to be true. So our senses will almost never argue with us, unless we mess them up or drug them or, you know, do whatever kinds of crazy things we do to our senses. Their conviction is already set. They, they, they come about to continue interaction between an inherently real self-nature and other. And so they will never give us the true story. Because they don't come about, they don't function, unless we believe in self-nature as being inherently real then the senses can function. They are actually an extension of our awareness, of our mind stream, in a sense. In this way, if you can imagine putting white light, let's say just regular sunlight, through a prism, That light will break up into several different colors, right? Are those colors real? Or was the light real? Which is the real thing? The colors or the light? Anybody know for sure? Not really. We're not real sure about that. I mean, we get the wavelengths and the different, you know, scientific stuff that we know about it, but there isn't a real sense of what the nature of reality actually is. You see one thing changing into another, one sort of energy changing into another because of different causes. Our five senses are like those rainbow colors that display or come from an an inherent thought or assumption in one's consciousness. So in the sense that the consciousness is like the pure, pure light and the senses are like the display that is put through a prism, in that way they are exactly the same. And what is the prism that our senses 
come from or uh, seem to display from that prism that is our own habitual tendency in our minds. That's our particular prism. Set of ideals, ideas, set of assumptions, set of concepts, set of beliefs that we have been trained in since the time we were newborn. Because as newborns, the first thing we are trained to do is to use our senses. So we understand reality literally from the outside in. It's like we're trying to look inside the window of our own house without the good sense to go inside. Our looking through our senses is like that. And when we practice Lindro, we begin to purify those five senses. We begin to bend some of the ideas that we have. For instance, when you take refuge, if you think about it, we take refuge in the three precious jewels maybe for the first time. We practice refuge. We practice bodhicitta, which is taking refuge in the three precious jewels, and then the commitment to practice in a compassionate way. Now, how does that purify the five senses? Well, if you think about it, what did you used to take refuge in? What do you still take refuge in? We take refuge in everything from uh, the sofa and the TV to our belongings, to our relationships, to whatever material goodies we have been trained to be attached to. We have taken refuge in the belief that everything's just solid the way it is. We've taken refuge in our five senses. And boy, isn't that crazy when you think about what they actually are, that they are just this play of our own ideas. So it really is like an orphan looking into the window of a beautiful castle that really is where he lives, but he doesn't know any better. We're sort of like that. When we begin to take, uh, take refuge in the three precious jewels, we begin to turn away from things that are inherently disappointing and dissatisfying. And this sense of dissatisfaction is, has not been understood until now. We know that we are dissatisfied. We know that we are unhappy. We know that we don't have the things that we want. We know that things aren't the way that we want, but there's no real understanding of what the problem is. So we try to fool around with our five senses, kind of manipulate things. We make things look better, we clean things up, we move things around, trying to make ourselves happier. For the first time then, when we take Nundro, practice Nundro, we repeat again and again and again some intention to see the truth for the first time, not to just take the illusion of the five senses and make and, and wear them on our head like a crown, you know, make them form our uh, new ideas for us. Rather than that, we begin to learn to look a little bit deep, deeper, to have a deeper perception. Because in order to practice refuge, for instance, yet there are certain things that you have to realize. 
you have to realize that the refuge that we are practicing is uh, is directed towards that which is not part of samsara. In order to practice refuge, refuge truly, we look around at things of the world and we think, looks solid, seems solid, maybe I can even drink it. Yeah, still feels like liquid, feels like a glass. But for the first time, we're beginning to recognize that there's an underlying nature. And we're beginning to recognize that phenomena has certain characteristics. For instance, this is impermanent. Pretty soon I'll finish this, and then it will be gone. Then it'll be just a glass. Then what? And everything that I have here will all eventually decay and rot away. Even this Vajra throne that looks so wonderful and splendid, even this will decay and rot away. The material will decay and rot away. Even the very clothes that we're wearing, even our bodies, decay and rot away. Some of us are learning that. And they change over time. We're beginning to learn and orientate ourselves a little bit differently to understand that the things we have relied upon up until this time, including our own vanities, are leaving us right now. Well, they seem solid, but in due time, everything is impermanent. Material things will no longer exist. They will pass. Relationships will pass. Everything that goes up comes down. Everything that is born must die. And nothing that we perceive is the same as it is even for ten minutes. Although there's something about our consciousness and the way that we perceive that makes everything seem stable. Sure, I don't look the same as I did 20 years ago, but basically everything's stable. We think, yeah, I don't look much different, but it's still me, and me exists right here. None of us, even those of us with gray in our hair, ever think about the time of death. We studiously avoid that if we can. We don't plan for it. We don't think anything like that. And yet this is an event that will come to all of us. Everything that we have now will pass. We will all share this experience. And for the first time, as we enter onto the path and practice Windrow, we begin to understand that. It can be a little painful at first. We'd rather have a philosophy or a religion that gives us pie. We'd rather have pie. Pie in the morning, pie at night, and we'll all be happy. And then at the end, we get the biggest piece of all. I wish it were like that. I wish it were just pie. But it's not. And the hard fact is we have to face that reality. Rather than going through our lives like deluded sheep, sort of drunk with our own concepts and willful ideas. Instead of that, we begin to practice Dharma. And in practicing Dharma, we see that everything is impermanent. 
But underlying all of it, there is something essential. There is this primordial wisdom nature that is our true nature that we haven't awakened to yet and perhaps cannot yet recognize, but is the basis for the path of Dharma and is the basis for the idea that someday we can be liberated and liberate others as well. These are new and radical thoughts. I mean, think about it. If we were to somehow really get these thoughts and multiply and be tons and tons of people, and we were to really infiltrate a society, that society would change radically. Things that are so important would no longer be important. And things that were not important would suddenly become more important than anything, such as living in the world together and getting along and honoring one another, as opposed to fighting over finite supply of this, that, or the other thing. So these are radical thoughts, and as we begin on the path of Dharma and begin to practice preliminary teachings, our vision becomes cleared. And other things slowly and gently become more important than what we were entrenched in. Suddenly we look at samsara and we go, sort of disappointing. I mean, all this work and then you get to die? All this work and then, then you're old? What is this? You look around and you begin to think, well, maybe you're another kind of person. Maybe you've reached the highest heights here in Potomac, Maryland, or Poolsville, or whatever's, whatever the heights of Poolsville are. <laughs> maybe you've reached the heights. Maybe you've got the big house and the cars and the beautiful family and all of that, and you wonder, and now I still get to get old and die. And it's beginning to look a little, I don't know, Sort of like you had a party last night and the next day you get up and you look at the house. <laughs> and it looks kind of like horrible and nasty. And you begin to realize that what's here in samsara really isn't all that wholesome. It's all filled with death and decay, even our own bodies. And so slowly, slowly we begin to look towards something else we begin to understand that there is something other than this cycle of death and rebirth. Our attention is drawn to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, and we begin to learn about them, who throughout time have come and given us these perfect teachings that can bring us to a state of true recognition so that liberation is a possibility. It sounds like a small turn a small coming of age, but it makes all the difference. In order to practice Dharma, you have to go through this kind of true seeing, seeing what the faults of cyclic existence actually are, seeing how impermanence is devastating, 
seeing how no matter how you love or who you love or what you do to try to keep things together, to try to bring help in an ordinary way to the world, that there is no help to be brought, no ordinary help at least. Even when it comes to being kind to sentient beings, if we don't learn these thoughts about the nature of phenomena, how can we even understand how to be kind to sentient beings? For instance, when it comes to compassion, if you think about it, if I had infinite supply of money and I could feed everybody in the world, maybe I could, maybe I could give everybody in the world all the food that they needed so there would never be another day, not even one more day of hunger. Well, that would be lofty and that would be wonderful. I'd love to decimate hunger. But then what? If we feed everybody, will they then know how to feed themselves? <coughs> will they know how to not die? Will they know how to stay healthy? Can we keep them from suffering? Can we follow them from their death into their next life and feed them there too? Of course not. So these are the things we begin to contemplate and we understand that there is nothing in samsara that is not impermanent. Little by little our attachment changes. It's very subtle. As you contemplate these ideas, our attachment changes and we begin to look for something else. And that is a necessary preliminary step. Otherwise, you find yourself practicing Dharma in a materialistic way. Meaning to say, I have this fancy robe. I can walk like this. I can look very lordly. I can sit on this great big uncomfortable chair <laughs> and that's practicing Dharma in a material way I have a temple I live in Washington DC and I go to a cool temple and that makes me a cool person I'm not like the other folks I am cool I do this exotic thing and it makes me feel good I minister the Buddhist teachings to the people and it makes me feel good. There's not much help to be had there. And one would hope that in practicing Dharma, in walking on this path, that the basis of it would be some recognition of the false of cyclic existence. Otherwise, there's no hope eventually we will be practicing Dharma in a materialistic way. So the bad news is all phenomena and everything we delight in is impermanent. The good news is that also indicates the nature of things we do not delight in. So the bad things are impermanent too. But that being the case, we must wonder, what is our strength? We grow up thinking our strength is family, our strength is our health, our strength is having money in the bank, 
Our strength is our country. And then we find out that none of these things are indeed the strength that we thought they were. That in fact the only thing that you would ne- you can never lose, that you cannot destroy, and that you cannot cannot abandon from lifetime to lifetime, is your nature. Now, if you cover that nature over with a bunch of discursive thought and external fixation and belief in stuff, if you cover that nature and that nature sleeps, it's still with you. It's still perfect. It still couldn't be better. It is still absolutely complete and yet spontaneously clear. But we are asleep. Kind of like the walking dead. Kind of like that orphan looking in the window of that grand castle, being cold and hungry and not knowing that the castle is his. So we spin from life to life, seemingly losing our treasure at every door, seemingly unable to keep ourselves in some way that brings true happiness. And so these preliminary practices in Dharma begin to loosen up the crust and the dirt of ordinary view so that the diamond, crystal nature can be perceived. Actually, we come to find that we have a great deal of wealth, of riches, of stability, of all the things we've ever wanted, yet our minds are coarse and dull and we cannot recognize them. We have ideas about one another and perceive one another with attraction or repulsion. Like, hey, I think you're cute. I'm attracted to you. He's my son. It's okay, I can say that. (laughs) And then I'll say, hey, I don't think you're so cute. I don't like you too much. Completely ignoring the treasure. Completely ignoring the Buddha. Slowly, slowly, we begin to lose these ideas, these fixations. The idea that the way to respond to another living being is to like it or not like it. And from that is born compassion. From that understanding, we come to understand our sameness, not our differences. Because the things that we concentrate on that make us different, that make us perceive ourselves in this ordinary way, are baseless, temporary, merely born of delusion. And what makes us the same cannot be destroyed.
Lord Buddha taught us that we suffer. We all suffer from the same thing. We suffer from desire. We suffer from the belief that self-nature is inherently real and that other is inherently real also, whether it be other thing or other person. And I either want or don't want that. I either accept or reject that. I react with hope and fear. But never, ever are my eyes opened in such a way that I can see their nature. Now we're at a precious doorway, a place where this fundamental thing can change. A place where we actually and truly can begin to awaken. How amazing that is to move into a state, finally, of recognition. Like opening one's eyes for the first time and seeing color, seeing beauty, seeing light, something like that. But even that is just a false way of describing Just a way to describe it so that it seems delicious. And you'll come and taste a little bit. And that's the nature of preliminary practice is to begin that awakening. Maybe it's not Dzogchen. Maybe it's not uh, completion stage practice. Maybe it's not some high-level hoo-ha with lots of drums and bells and whistles and stuff. But if it begins to awaken you, Oh, what a step to take. How amazing. If we begin to awaken finally. Buddha taught us that we are suffering from desire. And yet we are completely the same. That each one of us is the same. Not only the humans. The ones that are easy to recognize. But that every living sentient creature. Has within it the same potential, the same nugget of Buddha nature, everything is expressed and displayed from that primordial view, so that every creature is like us. Of course, we don't know that. We live in this state of unconsciousness, and so we step on bugs. We swat flies. We call the Terminex man. We do all the, we, we could care less if, you know, wintertime and there's no seeds around. So what if the birds don't eat? We don't care. We don't think about birds. You know, I love birds, so I use that as an example. We just live in this death-like zombie state. And now finally... We begin to awaken and recognize that we are the same. The bad news is that we're all suffering. The bad news is that we're all asleep and can't seem to wake up from a crazy dream that we're all having. But the good good news is that there is a cure for this suffering. And that the cure for this suffering is the precious awakening. And these are the steps. As we begin to practice Mundro, 
We take refuge in that which is unseen. We promise to practice compassion that we may never see the result of. We pure ourselves, purify ourselves of deeds that we can't remember doing. We begin to view and enthrone and practice guru yoga towards a reality that we can't touch or smell or taste. And yet, even while we're doing all these seemingly crazy things, we are following the instruction of those who have gone beyond, of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, who have awakened from this dream and have seen and have recognized. And so while we're doing all these crazy things, we're not getting any richer, or maybe not getting any prettier or any younger, but something amazing is happening. We've entered onto a path where we begin to recognize the nature of reality. For instance, in Nundra, when we begin to practice Guru Yoga, suddenly we're all confused because here we are, we're living in a democracy, and everybody's supposed to be equal except for President Bush. And, um, <laughs> and so everybody's supposed to be equal here in this democracy. Did I? Who says these things? <laughs> so... We're living in this democracy, and everybody's supposed to be equal, and then all of a sudden we're supposed to see this, what seems like we're supposed to see this one person, supposed to put that person on a throne, supposed to think of that person differently as one's refuge, as one's root guru. Oh, even in a democracy, that's not even, we're not ever prepared for that. We're not ever taught for that. We're supposed to make offerings to this person and think that this person is our only hope? This is it, your only hope. <laughs> <laughs> so at first it's a little confusing. But then as we begin to understand, we have never seen our true face. You have never seen what I see when I see you. I've had students come up to me and say, you don't know me. How can you know what's wrong with me? I don't know you. No, you don't know you. <laughs> so we practice this practice and we go through this routine and suddenly we begin to realize that this face that we are looking at, that after practice suddenly does seem to be somewhat holy, this person that we're looking at that seems to have this wisdom, suddenly through practicing Guru Yoga, I realize that this teacher and I are the same. That in our nature, we are the same. That by practicing deeply and profoundly, I know the face that is my teacher and my own face. So in the beginning, I practiced looking outward, 
And then ultimately I find that the throne is within. So it's really funny. You're being asked to not believe the five senses that you were trained to believe in since birth and that I can find all kinds of reasons why they work. They just work. Taste this. It works. So we're told to not go with that, but to look within, to see what is subtle and what is real, to turn on the lights and understand that we are suffering from old age, sickness, and death, that everything's impermanent. And that we are looking intensely every day for comfort and happiness by acting this way or dressing that way or going here or going there or buying this or selling that. Constantly looking for happiness, wasting our lives, tumbling around when all the time it's been here. And only due to non-recognition have we not known. All this time we've been creating causes for unhappiness, thinking we were trying to be happy. We thought, oh, I'll be rich and powerful, that'll do it. I'll be gorgeous and sexy, that'll do it. Slowly, slowly, we begin to awaken like little birds in a little nest. Peep. <laughs> we stretch out and look for some more food. And that's the spiritual event that we are engaging in now as we begin to practice Mundro. We begin to see, to awaken, and to know. We begin to do everything we were taught not to do and to ignore all the things we were taught to depend on. And suddenly, we're strong and we're free. Hey, Maho, how beautiful. And so that's the nature of this path. It's not easy. It takes a while. You have to trust what you didn't trust before and let go and abandon what has been harming you. There's no way you're going to get out of this without changing. But let's face it. You are trying to change from ignorance to bliss. So change you must. And I'm hoping that during this time, you'll take every opportunity to learn from Ani Renee, who is teaching Lindro practices, teaches them beautifully and very well. And I hope that you will enter onto the path fully and deeply. This morning, while I was getting ready for my teaching, I thought I heard some wasps outside. It was like a kind of a hum or a buzzing, but then I noticed it had a cadence. And then I noticed it was this crazy guy over there. He was out there sweeping my walk, saying Vajrasattva Mantra. And I thought, hey, Maho, how beautiful. So have a wonderful day. Say some mantra, some prayers. Look in the mirror and see something new for a change.
podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.